Hello everybody, Ken Krug and Tom Harrison here with Eternal Core. Today we're with Dr. Jacob Hess and we've got some amazing things to talk about today. I am going to turn the time over to these two because they're going to, like in 30 seconds they're going to be over my head and I'm just going to pitch in occasionally. Is that alright? Dig us, dig us in you guys. <laughs> well, Jacob, I remember very significantly back in the 70s when I started my practice um, how important relationship was and how desperate people with mental illness and mental health problems were in just trying to find something. I remember so many of my patients coming in and saying, I will do anything to feel better. And uh, initially, all we had to offer them was relationship therapy. Uh, I was trained in the psychoanalytic method and in the behavioral method. And I found out pretty early I didn't like uh, turning people into a bunch of rat, uh, lab rats. And so I used cognitive and behavioral therapy and, and found that that was very helpful. And then I remember in the 80s, um, about the mid-80s, it was about 83 or 84, uh, a big change took place. And that's when pharmaceuticals came in and... And when we were all introduced into to Prozac, and that was the beginning of the serotonin reuptake inhibitors, and people became pretty desirous of getting on that drug because they wanted to feel better, and they wanted to feel better quick. And that's what was being touted, that this is going to help you feel better quick. And I saw a lot of people moving their dependency onto pharmaceuticals and moving away from that more long-term process of healing through treatment. Do you have anything uh, that you could add to that scenario or help us with from your research? <laughs> I, I did interview one person who told me he would cut off his thumb if it would take the pain of his depression away. And another woman told me that it hurts so bad she thought it was going to kill her, just the pain. Well, it feels that way because some people feel like they're in a hole. Right. And there's no way out. So it's understandable that they would want anything that could possibly make the pain go away. And, right. and for some people, antidepressants can help, in, and especially in the short term, alleviate some of the pain. Uh, my research is focused on long-term outcomes. So if we're going to get a clear picture of how they help, we need to focus more than on just the three to six weeks, right? Correct. The, the FDA has approved antidepressants because of short-term studies that have shown for some people it can have a benefit in the short term. When you look long-term, you start to see, okay, this gives us more of a clear picture on how to use these tools in a thoughtful way. And some of these individuals have been on these drugs since the 80s. And, and it's my experience that you have to just keep adjusting the drug. And you have to add something here or, or add an antipsychotic down the road. And then I see a deterioration of their health, health not a, a benefit. Well, that's really what got me interested is one of my loved ones um, started treatment with antidepressants for some really painful things and for a while they got feeling better and then they would fall back into it and then they would get feeling better for a while and fall back into it 
And over the long term, I started to wonder what, what research has been done to, to show a path of more long-term healing. Because certainly she was getting better sometimes, on some days, but in many days it was like, I'm going to wake up and see how I feel. And it was just right. sort of like, is the combination of meds working for me today? And it was excruciating. So what the research has shown clearly over the long term is that um, it's not a pretty picture long term. That if you stay on the meds and it becomes your, your reliance for the long term as a primary solution, statistically speaking, people are not in a good place long-term compared to those who never go on. Every single one of the 20 studies I have seen, without any exceptions, on antidepressant outcomes long-term show the same pattern. Short-term, you can find this benefit for some people, and, uh, and not, not everyone finds the short-term benefit, but long-term, you really don't want to lean on them, put your trust in them as the long-term solution. And the New York Times just recently had a piece about how even though the FDA has approved them for short-term use, they're being used in a more long-term basis. I mean, people are being told, you need this long-term. Right. Your brain needs this long-term. Well, I, I hate to jump in but I, the entrepreneur in the mix here, you know, our software we made uh, as software as a service for recurring cash flow. You know, and I hate to say it, but, but, the, but the model that we tried to drive our customers to was long-term recurring cash flow that we could show to our investors um, as a pattern that wouldn't be interrupted. You know, and I, and I hate to say, but typically a business model will drive the, the outcome of the business strategy. Is that even a factor here? Is it, I, mean, I mean, drug companies, they need to make money over time. And is anybody really researching how to heal people and, and get them off the drugs and into a, a healed step? Oh, well, they're for Yes, for sure. There is um, a former drug representative who went on to study at Yale University and published his experience of how they had been pushed and encouraged as drug reps to um, persuade doctors to get their patients on long-term courses of antidepressants because it would, it would help the, the business. Um, it's pretty clear that the research doesn't support that. Mm. Anti-anxiety drugs, same pattern. Anti-psychotics, same pattern. The long-term studies show people in, a, in, a, in not a good place. So if we want empirically-based, science-based medicine, we, we would pay attention to what does thoughtful, selective usage of antidepressants, anti-anxiety, anti-psychotics look as a part of a package for some people. That would include an option of tapering off at some point. Now, unfortunately, the on-ramp is huge to get on, but to get off, it can be a little tricky. Many people go in and their doctors will say, okay, let's cut your dosage in half. Now, if you cut your dosage in half, um, it's very likely that withdrawal effects will be so severe that you won't be able to get off. But if you go in a very gradual, careful way, 10% decrements at a time, most people can get off. And those side effects can be really troubling and very difficult. And, and what happens is the majority of the people then, then get a mindset that I guess I really need this medication because look at all the side effects they're having. So they, they interpret that incorrectly. They think, oh, this proves that I have a severe 
chemical dysfunction in my brain and I need this med. And that is often reinforced with these people. Exactly. In the very moment when you start to taper off, you could tell two stories about that moment. Like, okay, I'm feeling a lot more. I'm having all these things. Is it a return of the depression? Or is it withdrawal effects? And if wow. you interpret it as withdrawal effects, you can ride them out. Now, right. every drug has withdrawal effects. Correct. If you stop drinking Coke, <laughs> you're going to have to ride it out. Right. So that's the good news. And, and, and let me say this. In my interviews with folks, many people have told me when they finally taper off an antidepressant, they feel like themselves again. Right. It's an interesting thing. When they, they get on and it, they find some benefit, they can feel themselves again. But if they get off, they can find themselves again. So there's right. good news here. Right. This is not an anti-drug message. It's not an anti-doctor message. There's an important place for thoughtful, selective usage guided by a physician. My concern is that people are being told, this is your life. I interviewed one woman who told me that the day her doctor told her that depression would be a lifelong problem, that she would need to be on these meds forever. That's the day her suicidal thoughts started. Mm -hmm. So my concern has been, we're taking people who are already feeling pain and we're telling them things that, I mean, if I told you right now, you have an inherent deficiency that is always going to make it hard for you to feel happy. That would probably weigh on Absolutely. you. And I found Wait, in my are you telling me that? <laughs> <laughs> I found in my research that story, yeah. you have a chemical imbalance. This is going to be with you for the rest of your life. And you, uh, you're going to need to lean on this the rest of your life. Let me tell you one story. I get, was given a presentation to the Rotary Club on depression recovery. Mm -hmm. A woman came up to me after in tears, and she said that her friend, who was a Mormon mother, um, had been struggling with depression and had gone to a doctor and gotten on some meds that were influencing her sexual relationship with her husband. This is a, a Latter-day Saint mother of a couple of kids. She went into her psychiatrist and said, I, I need to make a change. This is, this is not sustainable. I can't do this. I'm not able to connect with my husband. And the doctor said, this is, this is what you have. This is going to be your life. You're going to need to be on this the rest of your life. She went home, wrote a note to her family, her kids and her husband, went out and took her life. Now, I'm pretty sure the doctor didn't go home and think, what did I say, right? He probably went home and said, bipolar disorder is just such a hard thing. What I would love is that we have more awareness as to the, the impact of these stories that we're telling people. If that story was scientific, <laughs> If the science actually confirmed that people have these disorders for, for good and they have an enduring chemical imbalance that needs to be corrected, then we should tell them. But you know, as a mental health professional, the latest research on the brain is wildly optimistic. That moment by moment, depending on what we eat, I saw you eat some gummy bears before. <laughs> you probably sparked some neuroplastic changes connected to gummy bears. I thought it was the most healthy thing we had. <laughs> With emphasis on plastic. I thought it was the healthiest thing we had in the basket. <laughs> I, I told one, I told my sister once who, who, who was suffering with depression about neuroplasticity, brain changeability. Right. And she said, I can do something. Right. Previously, she was like, well, I just have to wait for something else to determine whether I'm feeling good. But she started to feel like, well, maybe I can learn to meditate. Maybe I can 
get more sunlight, right? And so that's the first wildly optimistic thing. But it's more. There are thousands of studies that document risk factors for depression, for anxiety, for ADHD, Correct. things in our environment and our lives that set us up, right? Right. And, um, I've and, and, and also, you know, the commercials set us up. I mean, if you just, <laughs> if you just watch, if you, if you got the flu and you watch a couple days of TV, what are we being told by mm. these pharmaceutical companies? We're being told that, that you need this, you need to stay on it. And there are some strongly deceptive processes in those messages of, you know, that you need this like, like a diabetic needs insulin, that you, that you will always need this. And, and so people buy that because they, they don't, they're not hearing this. They're not reading these research. And so they truly believe what they're being told, doctor. This message isn't getting out. No, it's not. And I would say we're currently suing uh, pharmaceutical companies for opioid um, deceptions, right? We certainly are. All over Utah. Why? Well, all Be over the nation. Because we're yeah. suddenly waking up, but wait a minute, all those doctors who were saying that these are the answer and the marketing was actually inflating the results. I can tell you, because I've studied this for 10 years, what? the exact same patterns that we have seen in the opioid uh, overpromotion, exact same patterns have happened with antidepressants. And I'm talking about doctors who have been paid to promote them in certain ways and an inflation of results. And some of the results that are unflattering don't right. get shared. And so I, I, I wrote a, a Salt Lake Tribune op-ed on this just to say, if we're paying careful attention, let's also, let's not assume it's, it's exclusive to opioids. Because let's be careful. You know, and, and again, this is not an anti-doctor and anti-meds no. message. There can no. be an, an invaluable place for an opioid in a thoughtful say part of the package. marketing and that's my world, but <laughs> the doctors do their work, the researchers do their work, but then they turn it to the marketers who have to make money out of it. But, right. I mean, let's take Oxycontin. And we're in, no, that, that's not an antipsychotic. But, but, you know, Oxycontin, the research was if you took it with the coating on the Oxycontin. Oxycontin is a significant pain relieving medication, which initially was only given for people who had like terminal cancer. But then they found out that if you just licked it and you wiped the coating off it, you had a very different experience, but it totally changed the outcome of the person that was taking it. Hmm. So again, all this research is done on the medication within this small group of individuals. And I found that some people did not benefit from them. Some people had actually made worse. And yes, there were individuals that found a very beneficial process, and it was very important to put them on them initially, but then to gradually take them off and help them with other therapeutic processes, which would give them value and would help them. But we don't talk about that. Many people believe if I'm on this, I have to be on this forever. So excuse me for interrupting. Well, look, I would say to somebody who's on it and has found benefit, great, stay on it and, and um, find the benefit. But if you are currently 
on an antidepressant, anti-anxiety, on a, on a number of them, and you're and you're not feeling well, there are thoughtful um, ways to help taper down. And I have found in my research a number of people who taper off, kind of feel themselves again. But it needs to be done carefully, with guidance. You don't you don't just go cold turkey right. off stuff. That's Correct. that's dangerous. And the best news is this. There is a researcher at the University of Kansas um, who has looked at all the different contributors to depression, right? And he has a program where he just teaches people to make adjustments in your diet, in your exercise, in your stress level, to reconnect with meaning, to reconnect with relationships, etc. He has found that 100% of the people who can start to make adjustments in these nine, I think, is it six or seven areas, find their depression lifting to the point that it's not clinical anymore, and they, f- they find their, their well-being again. 100%, including people who hadn't found the healing on the meds. So there is lots of reason to be hopeful that if you can look systematically at all the different areas that influence depression or anxiety, or even evidence with ADHD and schizophrenia, you can start to move towards what I'd call sustainable healing. We talk about sustainable environmental practices, sustainable development. What does sustainable healing look like? Well, I would argue it's paying careful attention to all these risk factors as um, guideposts. Like, okay, so like my family has high cancer risk, right? Uh, I know families who have high heart disease risk. Mm-hmm. I can't do the same things that other people do. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are certain ways of living that set you up for depression. And mm-hmm. the sort of the modern ways of living, going too fast, eating junk, <laughs> yeah, right. um, never getting sunlight, stressing right. ourselves out, not being connected, that sets us up. Um, so if we recognize that, we can do something about it. One quick story is I, um, I, I used to teach a depression recovery class, and in the class, they would answer a questionnaire and find out all the areas of vulnerability. And one person came up to me at the end and said, I have nine risk factors for depression. She was so excited to discover that she had nine risk factors. And I asked her, why? Why are you excited? Because for the first time in 15 years of coping with depression and managing it, she was starting to realize that she could make some adjustments in her life that would start to get at the roots of depression. Um, So that's the hopeful message. The research is full of hope, and I would love for people to know that. Many people don't. Many people are told that this is just the burden you carry, the cross. And let me just say, I I, I heard a talk by a religious um, mental health uh, leader and he said, one day in the resurrection, we won't have the depression anymore. People won't struggle. And I felt sick to my stomach in that moment because everything that I had seen in graduate school suggested that that healing doesn't have to just wait till the resurrection. Yeah, that someday can be now. Yeah. Sort of like, yeah. like we can find a lot more healing, but instead of talking about that, we're just talking about treatment and managing. And I want to say, okay, let's manage Let's treat, but let's also open the conversation to what will it take to find long-term, lasting, deep healing? Well, I've got to jump in again because 
the entrepreneur in the crowd, we're, we're really practical. You know, we look for solutions, and as I hear you talk, I'm going to mirror back what I'm hearing, if that's okay, because I'm, I'm sort of a simple approach to it. You know, factors, risk factors, how about causes? You know, to me, if we're, if we're going to have lasting healing, let's solve what's causing the problem. <coughs> and and I'm, not, I'm not a fan that, I, that, that I'm wired faultily, that I'm always going to be, you know, having to struggle with depression, if that's, and, and I've just been through a massive car accident that I'm bouncing back from um, you know, over three years later, and, and I've been through serious depression. It's been a challenge, but, but if, if, I, if I have to have the mindset that that's how it's always going to be, because I'm wired that way, I love where you're going. You're saying, no, here's 10 things that are probably causing it. Yeah. Change the 10 things, the result changes. It's like software, if-then statements. If this, then that. Yeah. Now, I may be too simple here. Beautiful. Look, the only reason I don't talk about cause is very often people want to find the cause, right? Yeah. And I haven't seen in any of this the cause. I mean, sure. traumatic brain injury can be a huge contributor, even a right. direct cause. But it's one of 150 I've found. Yeah. I've looked at every single study I can find on risk factors for autism, right? Now, we talk about autism like it's just this big mystery. There are thousands of studies that have documented contributors. And if you look at all of them, you want to know what it looks like? It's complex. Yes, very. <laughs> Lots of different little things, including like age of parents. Now we're having kids. I'm in my 30s and you know, I have babies. That has a little influence and this has a little influence. And I like it because there's more humility to it. It's yeah. like... Yeah. This is something that we ought to look at as a complex thing and then look at comprehensive solutions rather than, hey, drink this and it will take it all away or meditate and it will all go away. I've even heard stories about from, from people who believe in diet who are like, get off all your meds and, and boost your amino acids and change your nutrition, your depression will go away. Uh, no. If you don't learn to like work with painful emotions, I teach mindfulness meditation. If you don't look at how to connect with um, a spiritual core deeper than emotion, for instance, good luck facing depression. Good luck facing addiction. So it needs to be multifaceted. It needs to be humble. This is not about anti this system or that. Everybody's doing the best they can, including sure. the doctors that are having people come to them in their desperation. They're doing what they can. There are as many contributing factors to mental illness as there are people, my experience. Yeah. And each person has to come to it uniquely and individually yeah. and find out what works for them. At Eternal Core, uh, God-centric mental health, we find that people that are willing to open themselves to all those contributing factors and create a community and, and see themselves as part of the whole, see themselves as an individual that has been involved in the three-act play, before, now, and what will become, they do better. They function at a higher level, and that's what we're trying to bring to this community. And we're so pleased that you would come and talk to us. We'd love to have you back and talk a little bit more about any of those factors, which I just brought up. But I'm sorry, our time is finished for today. But Dr. Hess, thank you so much for coming and speaking with us today. This has been a very enlightening and very, sick, hopeful. And very hopeful conversation. So thank you very much for being with us. You're Dr. welcome. Hess.